this week on the Back Table Podcast. One thing I'd like to add, too, to that, uh, I think that's fantastic advice, is, is monitor your outcomes and, and share that with your urology colleagues. I, I think that having that data available to them is very helpful in letting them know, how are we doing? How are the patients doing? What, what, what is our recurrence rate? What is our complication rate? And I think that they also understand, and they're, they're really starting to understand more and more, that let's say you do have a recurrence rate that's somewhere around 10%. A recurrence rate of 10% in repeat and ablation is significantly less complex than having to reoperate. Okay. And I think the urologists really appreciate that. And I think that that really helps build your ablation practice as well. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's Backtable podcast. Backtable is your resource to connect with your IR colleagues and learn tips, techniques, and the ins and outs of the devices in your cabinets. As a reminder to our listeners, our recently updated app is free to download on the iTunes store. You can also find us at backtable.com and on Twitter using the handle at underscore backtable. This is Michael Barraza returning today as your host, and I'm thrilled to welcome Ahmed Camel from UAB and Mike Devane from Greenville Health System to discuss their experiences with renal ablations. So first of all, just wanted to thank our guests for joining us today. It's an honor to have you both on the podcast for a topic that's easy to get excited about. Uh, so I was hoping we could kick things off by having you tell us about uh, the status of renal ablation in your own practice and how it has evolved, starting with you, Ahmed. Uh, thanks a lot, Mike, and uh, thanks for uh, inviting me to share in this. Um, we definitely have uh, like a uh, uh, you know collaborative service with our urologists uh, at UAB, and uh, we try to uh, collaborate with them in uh, patient selection. And uh, uh, we definitely uh, uh, do not try to uh, do these things unilaterally on our side, but always you know have this kind of uh, collaborative work with them. Uh, because I think this is uh, definitely better for uh, patient outcomes. All right, good deal. What about you, Mike? Tell me about you. Uh, well, thank you for inviting me on this podcast. It's a it's an honor to be here. It's an honor to uh, to take part uh, in uh, Backtables. Great podcast. I, I've been watching. I've been listening to your podcast. Several of them now, and they've just been fantastic. Um, our practice here, we work very closely with our urologist as well. Uh, primarily, one urologist who has been tasked with working with all of the oncology patients who were potentially going to be ablation candidates, and also following them as well. So we work very closely together in patient selection, and we do all of the cases together. So he is actually there in the room with us whenever we do any of our uh, renal ablations. So we work very closely together. It's really interesting to me, and, and it'd be interesting to hear from both of you about how this relationship has evolved. Because for me, uh, you know, the relationship with the urologist is kind of the rate limiting factor in getting these patients on the table. You know, to them, it it is um, you know interpreted as more of a competitive venture than a collaborative one. So you know, starting with you, Mike, like how did you start to build this together hand in hand with the urologists? When we first did, started doing renal ablation, there was a private group here in town. And then there was also the um, university hospital group as well. And so there were several urologists involved and it was kind of a scattered effort. They moved to the private hospital in town and we've been collaborating collaborating with the uh, university urologist ever since, and primarily one urologist. So we've developed a very close working relationship. We review all of the scans. 
we determine whether the patient's going to get cryoablation versus microwave ablation. And we determine whether we're going to do a biopsy beforehand or whether we're going to do a biopsy during the procedure. So we work very closely on all the patients. And, and that has really made all the difference in the world. It's a matter of of IR being available uh, anytime urology has a question or concern and anytime any of his partners have patients, then they typically will call us or send us uh, an email and, and want us to review cases. So it's, it's really a matter of being available and being there for them all the time and, and also patient selection. I think patient selection is crucial. Ahmed, has your experience been similar? Has this been a collaborative effort from the start, or was this, uh, you know, some, kind of a hump you had to get over before you could start doing these together? Um, actually, I echo what uh, Mike said. You know, uh, pretty much similar. Uh, uh, th- there was ac- absolutely no objection to us doing this. Uh, the, uh, and a matter of fact, they were actually uh, more happy, you know, ha- providing. Uh, this, uh, you know, percutaneous options for their patients. Uh, it was just uh, another uh, weapon that they have in their uh, pockets, you know, for treating these uh, cancers and, um, you know, taking care of their patients. I think, you know, the more, um, we, you know, uh, like I said, again, talking about collaboration, you know, um, most of the studies right now uh, or the studies that we have seen so far on the techniques and you know, it's just comparing techniques like uh, uh, minimally invasive versus partial nephrectomy or radical nephrectomy and then comparing several other techniques on the percutaneous side versus uh, partial nephrectomy. So we're just comparing techniques together. And I think, you know, as we move forward, we have to start, uh, you know, try to getting outcomes about algorithms. Uh, just like Mike Devane mentioned, you know, we need uh, to see how this algorithm works. What are the outcomes in terms of uh, patient survival when we adopt a certain algorithm? So we don't have to say, hey, this is uh, my case, this is your case. You know, we have to reach a very good you know, algorithm that outlines the indications for each technique. And we funnel the patients into uh, whether partial nephrectomy or uh, minimally invasive techniques, and then look at the how the outcome of that whole algorithm looks like, and compare different algorithms together rather than co- trying to compare different techniques. Because you know, you, there is there is two poles here. There is the patient pole who cares about you know the quality of the care, and there is the other pole, honestly, which is the hospital who cares about the quantity. They want you to do more ablations and this and that. So there is this kind of, you know, and you are in the middle here. You're, you're trying to satisfy both. You're trying to do uh, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of your work. But at the same time, you uh, definitely need to look at the quality of the care that you give to your patients. So we shouldn't be doing ablations for every patient. We should be doing it for select patients that we know the outcome would be better. And then leave the others for partial nephrectomy, you know, that we know that partial nephrectomy probably would provide better outcome. I agree with you entirely, and it's it's one thing that's interesting to me is that algorithm tends to be different depending on where you are. I mean, if you look at the most recent data, there's a great new study in JVIR called Percutaneous Cryoablations of Renal Tumors. Is it time for a new paradigm shift? And uh, in that study, they quoted 3.2% local recurrence rate for cryoablation compared to 2 to 7% for surgical techniques, including the you know laparoscopic procedures and the partial nephrectomies. Uh, you know, one can make the argument that, you know, this algorithm should should favor ablation a lot more frequently than it does. And so I'm interested to hear from both of you and, and 
you know, what this algorithm looks like at your institutions, um, you know, which are the ones that you are getting for ablation rather than, you know, for operative management, starting with you, Mike? Uh, our, our algorithm has definitely shifted. When we first started doing renal ablation, we were basically only doing the patients that were not deemed good surgical candidates due to other health problems, things of that nature. And really that, that has shifted. In our institution now, every T1A lesion, if we think that we can ablate it, uh, we're going to do that percutaneously. So that's been a major shift, and that certainly increased our volume of ablation. And that's really necessitated us following and doing outcomes analysis on these patients and seeing how they're doing with the ablation. And so far, the preliminary data is really showing minimal complication rate um, by doing all of them percutaneously. We bring in every patient with the intention with a T1A lesion, whether it's anterior, no matter the location, we're going to, or T1A lesion rather, uh, we, we bring them in with the intent to treat. And currently, I have a cohort of nearly 200, 250 patients. We've only had to have one where we got to the day of the procedure and we absolutely couldn't do it for anatomical reasons. So I think that's, that's really moved move the ball as far as moving towards percutaneous and, and away from partial nephrectomy here, or at least for T1A lesions. Ahmed, what about you? How are you guys looking at these patient-to-patient standpoint? Uh, definitely similarly, you know, for T1A lesions, uh, less than four centimeters, definitely, you know, ablation works much better, except, you know, for, uh, you know, certain lesions, uh, very close to the sinus, you know, uh, to the renal hilum, close to the pelvic cell or bridging the pelvic cell system or very close to the ureter where hydrodissection, all that stuff kind of like fails. But generally, you know, I think, you know, with developing expertise, you know, uh, you can almost uh, do any lesion now. You can, uh, you know, push the surrounding structures with, um, you know, gas, uh, air, CO2, or uh, D5W. Uh, it depends what uh, what uh, ablation you're doing also. That's that's another thing. But uh, we're also doing uh, 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 T1B uh, as well, and there's... Uh, you know, several uh, publications also that uh, added this uh, indication, you know. Um, so uh, these are basically slightly larger lesions than four centimeter. And, uh, uh, you know, overall survival has shown, um, uh, you know, to be similar between cryo uh, ablation and uh, partial nephrectomy. There's a little bit more local recurrence in some of the studies, but uh, generally, you know, in uh, sick patients, you know, with lots of comorbidities, you know, uh, age is another determinant factor. And the fact, you know, they have any chronic kidney disease or the, you're worried about the GFR uh, dropping, you know, after partial nephrectomy, definitely, uh, you know, the urologist and we also, you know, we prefer to do uh, percutaneous uh, ablation for these patients. Now, Ahmed, tell me this. Uh, for the patient that you're treating, are you seeing most of these patients in clinic beforehand? Yeah, we see all the patients in the clinic. Um, uh, we definitely have like a, uh, we do, we consult them on, uh, you know, the different options that they have. Um, and we tell them that, you know, we uh, uh, studied their whole case, you know, with the urologist and uh, our recommendation is to do this. But we still talk to them about other options in case they would not. Uh, kind of convinced of ours, we try to talk to them about the very important thing, which will be the 
uh, type of sedation they will get. Uh, and we can send them for the procedure. We talk them about potential complications that might happen. Uh, we definitely review the images because this is very important. We'll put a plan um, and, um, um, you know, if, if this involves the urologist, we definitely try to communicate that plan uh, to the urologist. Uh, like, for example, if you're going to do some sort of uh, uh, pylon fusion or, um, you know, any type of, if, you know, it depends on the location of the tumor, but if we're trying to protect the uh, renal pelvis, we're going to definitely communicate that to the uh, urologist so that he will place the double J catheters and we flush through them. Um, so yes, we see them all the time in the clinic, and I think that is very instrumental in uh, getting our, uh, you know, um, other services kind of like convinced that we're a similar clinical service to them, and you know they see our notes and the uh, patients' uh, medical records, so um, we gain more respect, and uh, you know, by doing this, definitely. Mike, where do you all stand in Greenville? We discuss all of our patients at conference. Uh, being a private practice, we're not certainly not where UAB is as far as having a brick-and-mortar clinic. We're, we're trying to move more towards that model. Currently, the patients are being seen by urology. Uh, we discuss all the patients uh, in conference beforehand, and then we talk with the patients a day of procedure. And we're also involved in the interpretation and follow-up all of their imaging. So we're trying to move more towards that model, and I think that's really where we want to be long-term. I think we have to be more of a clinical practice, and it sounds like UAB's been doing a fantastic job of that. I, uh, we're, we're certainly trying to move towards that. Outstanding. Uh, so let's shift gears a little bit and uh, start to focus on some of the technical factors. And you know, one thing that we've uh, kind of gone over a little bit is, is cryoablation versus microwave ablation. Uh, when you're evaluating your patients, you know, what, what goes into that decision-making process to determine which modality to use? We do see that there is some advantage of using cryoablation in most of the cases. However, there are certain cases that we try still to use microwave or we prefer to use microwave ablation. So our more, we are more uh, of a cryoablation uh, uh, site, uh, even though cryoablation, uh, one of the uh, disadvantages of cryoablation is the length of the procedure. That's one thing. The cost of the procedures, that's another thing. Uh, but there's more, um, uh, some, uh, you know, publications and evidence of uh, cryoablation, you know, uh, in treating the renal cell cancer and uh, more comparative studies between cryo and uh, surgical techniques, uh, while uh, even microwave, uh, you know, in certain uh, and some society guidelines is still considered experimental, uh, even though it's not in our hands. But, um, but like I said, it's, there's uh, you know scarce data on the uh, comparing the microwave uh, with the surgical techniques. Um, again, the the difference I think technically when I would choose which, uh, generally I would choose cryo. It offers uh, I can ablate uh, advantage of this. I can uh, you know ablate a, a larger lesion. Uh, with cryo, uh, I can definitely um, see real-time uh, the ice ball developing uh, under CT, so I can watch that. I know if it's uh, close to any other uh, um, uh, critical organ. Uh, one of the things that uh, is also advantageous by using cryo is that you can uh, run each probe individually, uh, so you don't have, uh, if you think that uh, one of the probes is close to the uh, to the coolant, for example, or another critical structure, you can 
run it for uh, less of time, like five minutes instead of 10 minutes, for example. Uh, but uh, the disadvantages, of course, is that you have to uh, encompass uh, the tumor plus at least, uh, you know, five millimeter of safety margin around it because uh, the ice ball itself, uh, even though you see it on CT, there's a five millimeter margin where there is no kill. It's a the, the no, kill, no kill zone. Um, so you have to um, uh, basically uh, use a larger uh, uh, probe uh, to be able to achieve the same result uh, if you're trying to uh, use, compared to if you're trying to use uh, microwave. We do use microwave in certain situations when uh, the tumor is very uh, deep inside the kidney or close to the pelvis because, you know, we don't want to, uh, uh, you know, expose the pelvis to this extra uh, zone of non-kill, you know, by, you know, through the ice ball itself. Um, uh, but otherwise, we are we use more cryoablation, honestly, than microwave. I agree with Ahmed 100%. Uh, this is more anecdotally driven than data driven. And when you're trying to establish an ablation program, and if you're working closely with urologists like we are, that is the modality that they generally feel most comfortable with. They're using cryoablation for laparoscopic ablations. They're using cryoablation for prostate. So that's going to be the modality that they feel most comfortable with, as well as the fact that, like Ahmed, Ahmed said, it's more visual. You can actually see the ice ball. So sure. there is that comfort level. I'd, I'd say at our institution, we're probably at a two-to-one ratio favoring cryoablation. Uh, we still do a fair amount of microwave. Uh, this is all anecdotal. Uh, if it's an exophytic lesion and it's small, I'm probably going to favor using microwave. If it's endophytic and I'm worried about getting close to the collecting system, generally speaking, I'll use cryo. If it's going to be in the medial lower pole where I'm worried about getting close to the proximal ureter, I'm generally going to favor cryoablation. Uh, the the visual effect of the ice ball is definitely um, definitely an advantage, although you can, like Ahmed said, you can get fooled. That's not necessarily lethal ice, so you have to use that visual cue, but not also get fooled by it as well. Um, I think it's a matter of comfort level and what you're used to using, and especially if you're starting out and developing an ablation program. Go with what you feel most comfortable with, and for us, that was cryoablation at first, and we gradually over time implemented microwave more aggressively. And then um, the, just to add, there's a um, the new IRE, of course, and uh, we still have not defined its role completely. You know, we have done uh, some of the, you know, I would de- describe as the most difficult cases, you know, very central tumors, you know, uh, like in the middle of the kidney, you know, in the renal um, uh, renal sinus, you know, and uh or the renal hilum, and we, you know, we used um, IRE for some of these lesions. Uh, I would say our, you know, I wouldn't claim any experience. You know, our experience uh, in UAB at, you know, uh, the, the the whole group would be maybe three or four cases. Um, again, IRE is very cumbersome to do. It it requires a long time. You're gonna have to block the CT scanner for a long time. It requires anesthesia, special type of anesthesia, or very deep sedation. Um, so it has its, you know, um, it, I think it has limited use. I think it will end up being used for only, uh, specific lesions that are very difficult to get with the other two techniques, which is microwave and cryo. Right on. Now tell me this, uh, what systems are you using for both microwave and cryoablation? 
So we're, we're using Galil for, uh, for the uh, cryoablation uh, microwave system that we have. Uh, yeah, yeah. We use the angiodynamics. I'm sorry. Okay, great. We're currently using the new wave system for our microwave. Uh, we are going to be doing a trial and taking a look at the new Medtronic uh, imprint system, which looks pretty interesting. For cryoablation, historically, we've, we've been with Galil. We're doing a trial of doing some patients with endocare currently, uh, but Galil is pretty much our, our, our standard for our, for our cryo. Let's take this in another direction. We, we had also mentioned uh, you know, sedation. Uh, are you doing most of these with moderate sedation or, or general anesthesia? Starting with you, Mike. We do all of our patients with general. I know that sounds pretty conservative. Our patient population typically is more on the uh, large size. Uh, most of our patients are morbidly obese. Very difficult to say, sedate in a prone position, especially if you're going to be doing a prolonged cryo. They could probably tolerate the cryo in and of itself, but I think it's the amount of time on the table and prone position. So we favored anesthesia. Now, we're, we've been pretty fortunate that we have block anesthesia time two to three days a week. So scheduling anesthesia is really no big deal for us. So having them available has been very helpful. Patient satisfaction has been very high because the first thing they ask you before you do any type of procedure is, when are you going to put me to sleep? So we've been more conservative and we've, we've leaned in that direction. Yeah, I understand that. We're Tennessee and Alabama covered over here. I don't think that should... <laughs> you surprised to hear about what affects you, Ahmed? <laughs> yeah, uh, we're in the same zone, you know, of uh, obesity here. So it's um, honestly, it provides a lot of advantages, you know, with IR. We always, in the past, we used to brag about uh, us doing all our procedures without anesthesia and the risk of anesthesia and this and that. Honestly, these days. In high-end interventions, if I can get general anesthesia for the patient, uh, I'm talking about the ablations, the taste, the Y90, all that stuff. You know, I would definitely do it if it's if it's going to add an advantage uh, to the procedure. And I think it it does add uh, a huge advantage for ablations as well. But like I said, some of them are not eligible for it. Sure. So, Mike, tell me this. Oh, go ahead. I, I agree with that 100%. The targeting of the tumor, especially with CT guidance, is so much easier with anesthesia. Having the patients intubated and be able to control their breathing has been so helpful in that respect. And, and for the patients that, let's say you have a patient that is not an anesthesia candidate for general anesthesia at any rate, and you're really concerned about their sedation, I personally feel a lot more comfortable having anesthesia do the sedation on that patient, whether it's whether they use Versed and fentanyl or propofol or some other combination thereof or ketamine, I feel a lot more comfortable having those patients monitored by an anesthesiologist because I figure if they were that sick that they couldn't get intubated, then they probably require a higher level of monitoring during their sedation than what I can probably provide. Correct. Correct. And I agree with this too. So tell me this, Mike. Um, you know, are you sending most of these patients home same day or keeping them overnight? We are still very conservative at keeping them overnight. We've had some recent discussions that really hasn't made much of a difference overall in our patient cohort. Uh, could we send them home early? And generally speaking, uh, our, our only we've had two bleeding complications in over 200 patients 
that required transfusions, those pretty much declared themselves within the first few hours. But generally in the real elderly population, what we've experienced is, is they've actually had, and I don't know whether this is related to the anesthetic or just related to being in the hospital and having a procedure, but we've had some problems with ileus. So we've actually had to keep a couple patients around an extra day or so just because that they, they weren't able to eat, tolerate PO the next day. So we keep all of our patients for 23-hour observation. That's currently what we're doing, although we're considering in the younger patient population uh, letting them go home later that evening. Yeah, actually, I would like to ask Mike, you know, a question here, so I'm going to take your role now. Please. Uh, <laughs> so uh, what do you guys do? Uh, what's your protocol for biopsies? Do you do it for every case? Do you do it for select cases? And when you do it, do you do it bef- like uh, a while before or just immediately before the procedure? Or how do, how do you manage this? Great question. That is a fantastic question, and I've been batting that one back and forth. But uh, how we've done is we've done it predominantly. We biopsy every patient, first of all. The vast majority we biopsy the day of the procedure immediately before the ablation. And we've looked at our outcomes, and we said, okay, have we been over-ablating? What is is our percent rate of oncocytoma? And, And I think that really where it gets down to is the comfort level of the pathologist to be able to tell you whether you truly are dealing with an oncocytoma or a cancer with oncocytic features. So for us, a lot of these margins have been very blurry. And did we have a sampling error? So I feel pretty comfortable, unless it's a patient that we know that has a known malignancy beforehand, or we're dealing with metastatic disease or something else, we will biopsy those patients beforehand. If it's questionable as to whether they'll be able to tolerate the ablation or not, then I'll biopsy beforehand. But if I think that they're able to tolerate it, I think that there's a high pre-predictive, there's a high, high possibility that it's going to be cancer heading into it. The positive predictive value is very high. Uh, we just perform biopsy the day of. Yeah. So uh, if the if you perform the biopsy uh, beforehand, you know, like let's say two weeks before or you know, whatever your protocol is, and you found that this was actually a benign tumor and it's asymptomatic, it's just an incidentaloma, you know, something discovered incidentally on the uh, CT. Would you still ablate the patient? Would you change your uh, management scheme in these cases? But to me, it depends on what is the benign tissue. If the pathologist can comfortably come down on oncocytoma, then I probably feel pretty comfortable. And certainly if they say angiomyolipoma, um, unless I'm planning on treating that anyhow based on its size for future bleeding risk. I, it depends on the comfort level of the pathologist. And most of ours that have come up benign, they say oncocytic features. And to me, that's not really necessarily benign. So I'll go ahead and proceed with ablation. To be honest with you, the vast majority of our patients in our cohort so far, over 90%, have all had a malignancy anyhow. Uh, we've only had one patient that much to our surprise, despite MR and CT, it was a lipid-poor uh, angiomyolipoma. But to be honest with you, in retrospect, I probably would have treated that patient anyhow because they were approaching the four-centimeter mark, and I probably would have done it differently. I probably would have embolized that tumor uh, rather than ablated it, but they had a great outcome nonetheless. So is there a group of patients that you guys have in which you just say, you know what, uh, this is a RCC, it meets certain criteria in terms of size, patients' ages, X, Y, Z, 
this condition is X, Y, Z. We're just going to just, you know, and maybe there's prior imaging that shows it hasn't grown for the last five years, maybe, or whatever. Would you just keep, you know, just do nothing for these patients and say, I'm going to just keep imaging them and looking at this RCC? That, that's a fantastic question. And, and that's, that's been a very controversial issue for us is exactly how to handle some of the, these very small subset of patients. I think it depends on their, their, their overall health. If they are an unhealthy patient that we don't think would be able to tolerate an ablation, whether it's the anesthesia risk or whether it's the ablation risk at all, I'm more in favor of doing the active surveillance because I, I just do not want to cause any harm to the patient if at all possible. But if I think that uh, if it really has the imaging characteristics of an RCC and I'm very suspicious of it and I think that they're able to tolerate the ablation, no, we don't really survey many of these patients. Uh, we just go right, we go right to the ablation, especially once this tumor has hit the two centimeter mark, three centimeter mark or so. Uh, we're just very aggressive at go ahead and treating those tumors. But in the elderly population or the very sick population or some combination thereof, uh, we, we do have some patients that we are doing some active surveillance on because to be quite frank with you, we're just afraid they're not going to tolerate much. And I want to see how much is this growing? Are they going to end up dying with that cancer or is that going to be a problem where it has rapid growth rate where we need to take care of it before it becomes a metastatic yeah, we do pretty How much you the same, uh, Mike. Yeah, we do pretty much the same. You know, once it hits the two centimeter mark, we're more aggressive. If uh, you know, uh, like I said, uh, to, to start with, we're just talking again about uh, the same group that you mentioned, which is the elderly, lots of comorbidities. You know, uh, high ECOG status, like they just can't can't do everything at home by themselves. And now you're gonna stick a needle in their back and try to ablate here and there, maybe they will get a complication that they can't tolerate, things like that. So these are the type of patients that we try uh, to avoid. But again, once it hits the two or three centimeter mark, we are more concerned that even though it's not going to grow um, or progress in terms of size, you know, um, at a very small time interval, we're still worried about sending distant nets. So these are the type of patients that we are and like you said, we're more aggressive. So it's a size criteria plus, you know, uh, ECOG status criteria also, you know, age comorbidities, you know, the ability to function and, and the support system that they have at home also. You know, I just wanted to thank you both for devoting your time to this and commend you both for your efforts. Um, you know, this is something that I think could be really helpful to, you know, people like myself, a lot of the other people are trying to build this on their own. Uh, so again, I wanted to thank you both. Um, and I wanted to thank our listeners as well. And ask everyone to reach out to us on Twitter. Let us know what you want to hear. You know, we're dedicated to our community and always looking for ways to, you know, to improve what we can provide to our specialty. Uh, so I just wanted to thank everyone for joining us. Mike, uh, Ahmed, thank you so much for being here. This was fantastic. Oh, Thanks thank you. Lot, this thank has you. been a great discussion. All right, guys. And thank you, Mike. Everyone out there, we'll catch you on the next one. Thanks again.